boy, I love this time of year. We're getting close to Christmas. Happy holidays. Recently, happy Hanukkah. To everyone celebrating that or anything that you celebrate, it's all love here on the Behind the Mic podcast, which you can find on many podcast platforms. Our host is Anchor FM. I want to thank them. You can hear this on, of course, iTunes, which is the most popular, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or tons of of podcast services. You can even just listen on your computer if you don't want to listen on your iPhone or your iPad. Or you know what? You can pair the podcast to your smart TV and listen that way while you do something else. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe. Feel free to give me any feedback. Follow me on Twitter at Behind the Mic, Facebook, Instagram. We're not on TikTok yet. I make posts on LinkedIn, but you get it. You can find Behind the Mic or Mike Antonellis when you just put those names in on Google. I'll have um, I'll have an announcement as we're recording this. December fourteenth of two thousand and twenty will be a, a, a transition for me, and uh, something big coming up. So you'll find that out. But then on the next episode of Behind the Mic, which will be next week, December eighteenth, episode fifty-seven, I will describe all of that to you because there'll be some questions surrounding that, and you'll get them here. And also what you'll get here is part two as we hit the ice again with a good friend of mine. He's a hockey writer from Boston Hockey. Now we know him from NBC Sports Boston. Here is the rest of my conversation with the one and only Joe Haggerty. The union actually negotiated more off days for them. But the dumb thing is they're starting earlier and they're losing a lot of those because of weather. So, You know what's funny too is now um, Donald Fear. Is in charge of the NHLPA. Yeah. He used to be in charge of the Major oh, yeah. League Players Association, and you're seeing a lot of that stuff start to carry over into hockey now. Like when he came on board, one of the things that he did in the last CBA was uh, have the NHL agree to give the players at least, I think it's two days a month, designated off away from the ice. They can't practice, um, so the players know ahead of time they can, you know schedule family events, do whatever they need to do, and they're not going to have to practice. And that was never a part of hockey anymore uh, before. Like a hockey coach could always just punitively, if he didn't like the way the team was playing, say, you know what, you guys had an off day this day, but you're not having an off day now. I want you to come. I want you to practice. I want you to skate because you're not playing well enough. And that was like a tool that the coaches always had to try to motivate the players. Well, Donald Fear came in and said, no, what we're going to do is, we want all the teams to give you a month's notice that you guys are going to have this day off and this day off that month. And you cannot practice. You cannot do anything. And that is an off day that can't be uh, changed. And I guess I, I suppose the players can agree to vote and practice, even though the, it was a designated off day, if they agree to do that, but like what players are going to do that. Right? Yeah. And so you can start to see things like that. And I remember the first couple of years you could hear, especially with Claude, how pissed he was. He would like roll his eyes when he talked about like the negotiated CBA day off of the players because the coaches were used, used to be able to having that, like uh, that ability to make them practice, even if they didn't want to, or if they had previously, uh, you know, promised them an off day. So you can see now some of that baseball mentality, some of that like union strength, some of the accoutrements that the baseball players are used to starting to transfer over to hockey where it was never like that before. And that is totally an influence of Donald fear now leading the players association. It's good for the players. Sure. I mean, they're getting more benefits out of it. He's a fantastic advocate for the players. You know, he's the, I think the best union head that they've had in the NHL and certainly is pushing them where they want to go. 
but it's so uh, so antithetical to the old school ways of hockey and the way it was done forever. It's interesting to see that give and take going on. This is a baseball term, but do they do show and goes in the NHL? Like on a Sunday afternoon, like where they just. They always do show and goes. Okay. They like, always, they, they like immediately leave after the game is over. No, I mean, do they, do they do like, do they have days where they don't skate in the morning? They just go right to the rink. And oh play? yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that is something they call that an optional practice in okay. the morning and yep. then they'll skip it. And you know, what's funny is like, there's a trend now where there are like a lot of people are asking if the morning skates even uh, something that's necessary and there's talk of getting rid of it altogether and yeah. whether it still serves a purpose. And like a lot of players, especially older players, they like to go in the morning skate. It's like 10 30, 11 o'clock in the morning and then go back and they play that night. But, you know, as the season wears on, you see a lot of morning skates before games get canceled um, you'll see uh, optionals where only guys that aren't playing will show up and skate and the guys that are actually playing won't be there. And you do see that a lot more, especially when the schedule gets tight, you'll see option. Um, you'll see morning skates get canceled. You can basically bank on if the Bruins are playing back to back that the morning skate after the game the night before is not going to happen. Yeah. So it all depends on like the schedule, the circumstances, but like there was also, I think a really good understanding between um, Bergeron, Chara, Mark Recchi when he was with the Bruins yeah. and Claude, they had this really good relationship where Claude would go to them, would go to Chara and Drecky and say, do you guys need to skate? Should we give you the day off? And he would gauge what was going on in the dressing room and how the players were doing energy level wise. And, you know, all of that, he would gauge it with his leaders and the veteran guys in there. They were almost like coaches on the ice to get feedback from them on whether they should practice or not. It's funny. Um, I had Aaron Ward on a podcast I was doing and he was on those Bruins teams back then, right before they won the cup, uh, great defenseman, hard nosed guy. And he was telling the story about how in Buffalo, and this was early in Claude's coaching tenure, uh, he, Claude didn't like the way that they were playing. And he's, he, I think he was trying to invoke uh, a curfew and then an early morning skate the next morning. And basically Chara stood up on the back of the bus and said, we have plans to go out tonight. There's a, um, a fight going on. I think it was a pay-per-view boxing match or something like that. We're all getting together and watching the fight. He said, we're not staying in tonight. We're not going to observe a curfew and we're not skating early in the morning. And that was basically Chara like throwing down the gauntlet early in Claude's career. Like, you know, you better pull back the reins a little bit and give us a little leeway. Yeah. And, you know, as the captain, him doing that, he obviously earned the respect of all of his players. But it was, you know, that's the stuff you don't hear about at the time. But it's the tug and pull between established superstar players, veteran guys and coaches, you know, trying to keep the attention of everybody and, and walking that line between discipline, between getting the most out of them, but also like, you know, not creating a mutiny among the players. Yeah. How great is Chara? I mean, what he's done in his career. We're so blessed to have him play here for considering his age. Yeah, he's uh, a marvel. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen now? He's 43. He's not signed. Um, his agent has told us at Boston Hockey Now that he's just waiting to see what kind of season format they have uh, for the NHL. I think if it turned into a bubble situation, like for the playoffs where he was isolated away from his family, and where he wouldn't be with them for weeks at a time or months at a time, 
that he probably wasn't going to play. He's got young kids. I don't think he wants to be away from them like he was yeah. uh, over the summer when they played in the bubble in Toronto due to COVID-19. Uh, you know, so I think it's all going to depend on that. But, it, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I Obviously, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he's so important to the identity of the Bruins over the last 15 years, the best shutdown defenseman of his generation. I think he could can continue playing for a couple of years as a, a penalty kill specialist, as a guy that plays late in games, protecting leads as a third defenseman that still plays heavy minutes, but plays more like 15, 16 minutes a night than 20, 21 minutes a night. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think for him, like he has this thing in his head. It's almost like a Tom Brady thing where he thinks he can defy father time and he wants to see how long he can do it. And he's such a conditioning health nut that I think he wants to see if, you know, he can play until a really advanced age and, you know, maybe break Gordie Howe's longevity records in the NHL. He's got a chance to do stuff like that. It's, you know, it's been a pleasure to watch him. He's a legendary player, you know, tallest yeah. player ever in the league. You know who exactly who he is every time he's on the ice. It's been like that for his entire career. One of the most feared players ever. Uh, you know, it's and to see his work ethic, to see what he brings every day, to see the leader that he's been, and even you know, he's become a lot more comfortable with who he is and, and what he's about, and talking more about his personal life. And I remember when he first got to Boston, he was very sort of like closed off and you know, wouldn't want to tell you about like books he was reading, wouldn't want to tell you about stuff he was doing off the ice. And it was like all business. Mm. And I think as he's grown, as he's gotten married, had kids, as he's really, you know, matured, he's become much more open to just letting you know, like he can speak seven, eight languages. He's wow. got a real estate license and he owns property all over the world. Like, mm. you know, he's an incredibly intelligent guy in addition to being a very fearsome guy on the ice. And he's got a ton of interests and in things that he's into and he's, you know, a guy that likes to improve all the time at everything that he does. So, you know, it, it, it's been fascinating to get to him as the player off the ice and the player on the ice. I'll never forget um, interviewing his dad, who has never come over to the United States or North America to watch Zdeno Char play. Wow. Never, ever. He, he's in uh, Slovakia. He's in Eastern Europe. Uh, he was a, a wrestling Olympic wrestling coach, like Greco-Roman wrestling in like the 60s or 70s. Um talking to him about Chara, his dad, when they were over there for the premier games in Prague back in 2010. And it's funny, his dad is about my height, my <laughs> size, just a barrel chested guy. And I remember thinking the first time I met him, you can, it's unmistakable. His face is just like Zidane's, but I was like, where the heck did all of that height come yeah. from? Because this guy looks like a bear and Chara is just such a, a, you know, a tall, lean, fearsome guy. It's amazing. That's funny. Yeah. What a, what a story. What, and what is hockey guys are different right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you think they're more appreciative of, or maybe them becoming pros is not a, I don't want to say not as big a deal to them, but they've played hockey. Some of them since they were three or four, it just seems like a natural progression in their life. And they, I don't know. It just seems like they're different, different pros. They are. And I think it's ingrained in them from a young age. And this is just a culture thing in hockey that, you know, A, you love the game, B, you play hard, C, you play for your team. Like, you know, there's a lot of lip service played to that in other sports. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but you and I know there's a selfish aspect to baseball. It's a very individual sport it in is. some yep. ways. Yep. Um, and that it's not like that in hockey. And like there is a like a sort of a beating down of the individual and, and going attaining the individual goals from the time you're young 
all the way through the system, there's a culture that says, no, it's about the team. You never draw attention to yourself. That's why you don't see a lot of crazy goal scoring celebrations. That's why you don't see like a lot of demonstrative stuff going on on the ice. You know, some players will do it, but there's not a lot. And they seem to get a lot of negative attention heaped on them when they do make a spectacle of themselves on the ice. And it's good and bad, right? Like, it's good in the aspect of it teaches you to play the right way, respect your teammates, respect your opponents, like good sportsmanship, all that, the, the handshake line after the playoff series is over. Like there's some great aspects to it, but it also does take some of the personality out of the game, take some of the marketability out of the game where you don't have like superstars doing crazy things and drawing attention to themselves. Like you do in some of the other sports where they become kind of household names for as much the way they celebrate or the way they act as they do what they're actually doing on the field or on the ice. So there's, you know, pluses and minuses to it, but like, there's no question. My opinion, I've covered Red Sox games. I've covered Celtics games. I've covered Patriots games and Bruins games. I think the hockey players are the best to deal with. I think they're the most down to earth. I think they're the most hardworking and respectful. They're the easiest to talk to. Like I found in baseball, you had to like, jump through hoops to get players to do anything for you. And it was really difficult to build a relationship with them. They're very closed off. They viewed the media oftentimes the enemy rather than somebody that was, you know, a coworker. Yep. It's not like that uh, in baseball at all. I mean, in hockey at all, uh, you do develop relationships with those guys and you develop some admiration for them. Maybe some of it is because they're Canadian, a lot of them, and they're just brought up that way. I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of hockey and, and doing everything the right way. And, and they're sort of brought up that way. And, you know, it, it's just, it's, you know, life quality wise, it was no brainer for me that I wanted to cover hockey full-time rather than baseball. If I had a choice between the two, because it is a pleasure going into the dressing room. And part of it too, is the Bruins have Patrice Bergeron, who's a fantastic human being uh, on and off the ice, just a quality person. And I've covered the Bruins since his first day uh, with the Bruins organization in 2003 and he's always been a fantastic individual and, you know, somebody you would want your son to grow up like, you know, or yeah. your daughter to marry. He's that kind of guy. Um, Zdeno Chara, quality human being. Brad Marchand, I have a great relationship with him. And he's not like he is on the ice when he's off the ice. He's very accountable. And he was a beneficiary of being a rookie back in 2011 with her guys like Mark Recchi, Sean Thornton, Andrew Ferentz, Johnny Boychuk, great veteran guys that kind of showed him the way when he was a young kid. And now he's, passing that on to other players. Milan Lucic was a fantastic guy. Mm. You know, the, the Bruins had a very unique dressing room uh, that was welcoming to all. And, you know, it was very respectful of all and is not very like a 180 degree dynamic from what it could be like covering the Red Sox at times. And it wasn't horrible covering the Red Sox, right? But those 03, 04, 05 teams, the uh, individuals that were on those teams were amazing. Johnny Dame is one of the nicest guys that I've ever interacted with. Yeah. And he was phenomenal to talk to every day. Kevin Millar was a great guy. You know, I, Pedro, like I covered him for a couple, yeah. couple of years. Terrific guy. The Pedro, part of the time I covered him was also those uh, weeks and months where he got mad at the media for reporting something and he wasn't talking to us. He would leave handwritten notes for us about his thoughts about the game after it was over. Wow. I'll never forget in Baltimore. He did, he did that. Wow. He pitched, he left a note with Glenn Geffner, who was the PR guy at the time after the game was over and Geffner was outside of Tito's office, like reading the handwritten note that Pedro had left uh, about his thoughts about the start. Cause he just decided he didn't want to talk to us. Like the, the guys that were in that clubhouse at that time, I remember Derek Lowe, with the entire like mental gidget uh, thing that he went off on 
um, when Johnny Miller was asking him how his head was after he'd had like a, a tough outing. I think it was a Yankee stadium. Yeah. And he just went off for like 10 minutes in the, in the Red Sox clubhouse Lowe's on one side going off after Johnny Miller asked him a question. You could hear Johnny Damon and Nomar on the other side of the clubhouse going, don't do it, Derek. Don't do it. D'Lo yeah. stop talking. They were trying to like get him to stop what he was doing, but he was like a runaway train at that point, And he was just going off like Manny would, would do different stuff every single day, like crazy stuff. You had th- those teams were super fun to cover because when you went into the Red Sox clubhouse every day with all those personalities, the idiots, you had no idea what you were walking into. Yeah. Like th- there was entire crazy situations pretty much every day you were walking into that were a story among themselves. And, you know, it, th- those were fun to cover, but like, I think I re- realized 2010, 2011, 2012, like it was never going to be like that again. The Red, so- those Red Sox teams and those personalities and what was there then, it was never going to be like that. And there was never going to be like a, a, a height that the Red Sox were at importance wise pre 2004 and right sure. afterwards, or the character and personality of those players that were there at that time that made it such a fun era to cover the team. Yeah. You know, and I always say this, Dan Duquette always gets lost in all of that, but he made, no one realizes that he made, I'm not just saying a Red Sox history, he made some of the best trades ever. I mean, he got Pedro Martinez. Yep. Think of that. He trade. I mean, he signed Manny, he signed Manny for John. Oh, he drafted John Lester, but I mean, some of the Veritech, I mean, he built that core. It's pretty amazing what he did, you know, but oh, um, that Heathcliff Slocum trade for yeah. Derek Lowe and Veritech is one of the great trades of all time. Yeah. I mean, even getting Pedro, right. Yep. They gave up Carl Pavano and then it was Tony Armas Jr. I mean, <laughs> yes. for one of the best pitchers that you could argue ever. I mean, yep. I mean, he's in that conversation. So for sure. And I mean, like, and there were some great moves afterwards. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the Mike Port Theo uh, year where they got Ortiz on waivers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he was part of that uh, Ortiz, Millar, uh, Bill Miller, who was the uh, Giam- Jeremy Giambi, all those guys yes. that they threw at the first base DH, third base kind of thing, figuring Killer out what guys, they were going to yeah. do. Yeah. And like, you know, they, went, they just threw a bunch of names out there and saw who was going to perform. And Ortiz ended up like exploding into, like that was the, the backbone of that team. As much as it was the pitching, it was all about Manny and Ortiz being Definitely. three, four in that hitting lineup. Yep. That was behind every bit of greatness that those Red Sox teams achieved. Yeah. When you, I mean, I, I, I talk to pitchers a lot I and mean, you have guys in that lineup that are, those are the old crap guys, you know, like, <laughs> uh, so what, what's happening with, with the uh, winter sports? I mean, I saw some things on the website that you, you write for that Fenway might be a potential. Are we going to have no fans you think to start? I think to start, yes. Yeah. Um, I think well, it's the a state whole, thing too, right? I mean, the yes, state. It's, yeah. Well, it's every state. Every state. Yeah. yeah. And it's, there are guidelines that are different for every state. I think to start, you're likely to see no fans in all of the games. And then I think the hope that the NHL has is that as the season goes along, uh, maybe they can start to have fans in the stands. And by playoffs, which I think they're anticipating is probably going to be May, June, July. Um, that they will have fans in the stands, at least to some capacity. Um, you know, by that point, the vaccine will have been in play for, you know, at least a few months, if not more. You know, you talk to some experts who think April, May, we may start to feel a little more normal, like hopefully, fingers crossed on that one, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think their hope is, the league's hope is that as the season progresses, 
you'll start to see some percentage of fans back in the stands. And like the problem with the, the NHL and a lot of what's going on right now is that their TV deal is not as good as the other three big sports to where the other three, I think, can survive without no fans because of the TV deal. Yeah. Um, the NHL is still gate uh, driven and riven, revenue driven, and they need ticket sales in order for franchises to survive. And, you know, so they need some assurance of at some point fans will be allowed back in the building, allowed to start buying tickets. I think, you know, talking about playing games at Fenway is a way to maybe get some games with fans before you would be allowed to indoors. And I think that's why some teams are exploring it like the, the Bruins, and they definitely are, um, you know, uh, looking at Fenway. I thought Harvard Stadium would make sense, too, to potentially look yeah. at that. Maybe, maybe the infrastructure is not there. Uh, to do it for NHL games. I don't know, but I think it's a way of outside the box thinking for some NHL teams to get some revenue for at least a handful of games in the early months when otherwise they're not getting anything because, you know, for, for a team like the Bruins, Delaware North is their parent company. That's uh, a company that does uh, arena concessions and event concessions. And they're getting killed right now because, you know, there's no concerts, there's no sporting events, there's no fans. And so there's no concessions. And, you know, that I think that's affecting everything uh, along their business model, including the Bruins. But I think a lot of the teams are looking for ways that they can get some money, uh, including the negotiations going on with the players for deferring more of the money later on down the line, maybe having a bigger escrow and the players giving up more money. I think it's eventually going to get figured out because I think the players and the owners realize uh, they can't kill a whole season. Uh, because of it, they've they've got to continue it going and the, continue the momentum going. And yeah. if they skip a season, it could do irreparable damage to the NHL. So I think they'll eventually figure out the money and figure out a way to do it. But, you know, like I said, I think it's much more of a consideration bottom line wise in the NHL than in the other sports, because I think it's um, I think they get roughly 50 million a team uh, for the TV deal, the TV deals that they have. Okay. And they're estimating it's going to cost 150 million per team just in cost for salaries, you know, uh, travel, like all the stuff that they're going to have to do for a regular season and the playoffs. It made sense to just do it for two months in a bubble with no fans last summer because it was only two months and they could withstand that economically. I think trying to uh, crack $150 million nut for each of those teams to have a full season and playoff with no fans, it's just not going to work. So they're trying to figure out ways to get fans in the stands until the, you know, the government, the municipal governments for each state decides they can go in and have fans. Yeah, you know, I think that people are learning, you know, maybe the general person can have some extra income laying around if they get laid off. Yeah. But I think we, and I could be wrong on this, but I don't know if a lot of owners have all this, like, these giant gobs of money just laying around because they're playing with a little bit bigger hands here. Like I say, they're, they're at the casino with playing, uh, they're not playing $5 hands. You know, they're playing $5,000 hands and they lose yep. money. They're losing. I mean, it's insane money. So like, I know people don't like to talk about sports affecting our economy, but there's so many facets and levels. You brought up the concessions, but think about how many levels this affects. Yep. It's, it's a lot of people and these owners don't have all this cash reserve, do they? No. And it's, it's coming in 
from from every business. Like every yeah. business is affected by this. There, you know, if you're not Jeff Bezos owning Amazon, sure, <laughs> you know, you're hurting. There's a, there's only a handful. Of, like if you're one of the streaming companies, Netflix is doing really well because everybody's home and you know has to you know basically all they could do is watch stuff on TV. Uh, same with Amazon. Everybody's getting stuff shipped to them. You know, there's companies like that that are making money. But if you're not one of them, you're not making money. You're losing, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. And I, you've definitely seen it with Delaware North and with uh, Jeremy Jacobs. Like he's a billionaire, obviously. But like, yeah, you're not getting any money coming in and you're still paying out like to this company that you're running, you know, and uh, go across the board with all these other sports and all these other owners. Like I'm not going to cry for them because they're billionaires, but yeah. like they're definitely in a spot where like at the end of the day, like sports, professional sports is not a civic thing. You know what I mean? It's a business. <laughs> and yeah. if they're going to lose a uh, hundred million dollars, they're not going to do it. You know, they're, they're, it's not a business that's not going to happen until things are, are back to normal. That calculus just isn't going to work for the professional sports team. So it's, it, it is difficult. And you and I both know it, you know, we're living through it too. We're dependent on sports jobs and, you know, you see things change uh, over the, the last few months in the landscape you know, because of the way things are going. And we just have to keep our fingers crossed that, you know, we, we grind it out for another six months here and that, uh, you know, by May, June, things are going to be a lot better and we're going to be in a position where everything's opening up and, and things are getting back to normal. But I, I do think just based on the way things have gone for the last like year, almost like it's going to take a while to completely dig out of this sure. fully and, and to be back at, you know, full strength economy wise and job wise and everything else. So. Hope you enjoyed that. Another episode of Behind the Mic is in the books. And it was great talking hockey. And hopefully uh, the NHL will have, uh, I think, 50-something games as we get back to those winter sports here and uh, really enjoying those. All right, so enjoy everything, your week. We'll talk to you soon. Peace and love. Out, out.